I'm going to be reading scripture for us this morning. Um, so we're in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 2. Then we're going to jump to 26 to 28. Then we're going to jump a little bit more to chapter 2, verse 15. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. So there are only two things that you will spend approximately a third of your life doing, sleeping and working. And I think one of those two things is worth taking six weeks to talk about, okay? And that is working. So we'll do a series on rest at some point, but not sleeping specifically. So I wanted to begin kind of with a series of questions of like why we're going to take six weeks to talk about work. I'm talking about work outside of church, work. Many of you may feel like the moment you leave church, there is this almost immediate disconnect between everything you've done, everything you've learned, and what you're actually practicing out there in the working world. You feel this big disconnect, almost like you're living two lives. And I don't mean hypocritically living two lives. They just feel completely disconnected. And you may even be wondering, like, how does the gospel, how does the Bible, how does what I'm learning on Sundays or in my personal devotions, how is it even intended to transform what happens, you know, for many of you, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5-ish, right? Or you may think things like this, what does it even mean to work with Christian distinctiveness? I would ask you, how do you sense God's purpose and pleasure in your work where you are are sitting back and just maybe soaking it in on a lunch break and just like man I feel God's sense of pleasure as I do this thing that I'm doing with a massive number of my waking hours how does your work how does your vocation engage with your passions like things that God has put on your heart as like these are really big important things and you're like yes I see that in my work and some of you may even be like I don't even know what good my work is accomplishing. Like I do the same thing or the same kinds of things over and over and over again, and really to what end, to what good. And I would say, uh, I'm gonna give you like four reasons we're talking about this, and we're talking about it for an extended period of time. One is simply the sheer enormity of your life that you will spend working. And many studies will say that the average person, the average American will spend over 90,000 hours in just vocational work, let alone tens of thousands of hours doing work that is not vocational work, work that they're not paid for, like making meals and cleaning the house and cutting the grass and all that kind of thing. So the massive amount of your life is wrapped up in work, and yet 
Secondly, the tendency of the church is to not talk about stuff like that. Not because it's off limits, not because it's wrong. We just tend to sometimes as churches keep theology kind of vague and abstract instead of directly applying it to something outside of church life, like the rest of life. A third reason that we're talking about it, and I kind of hinted at this, is that many of us have kind of taken on uh, kind of subconsciously a, a dualistic or maybe even Gnostic kind of thinking where, do you ever do this? You think of like certain things in your life are sacred, certain things are like secular, or you may think like certain things are ministry or mission, certain things are like marketplace. And we have this duality to our lives that like this stuff matters, this stuff is just the stuff that you do to do your life. And we want to get rid of that dualistic thinking because it's not Christian thinking. And then a fourth reason that we're talking about this is I would say positively just the potential to make a massive Jesus-shaped impact on our city and on your workplaces is a reason that we want to talk about it. Doug Spada, who is the leader of Work Life Inc., a Christian ministry, he uses this analogy that the typical evangelical church in America functions like a cruise ship when it should be functioning like an aircraft carrier. And here's what he says, a cruise ship. You know, what, you're, you're there for the entertainment. You're there to be fed a lot. You're, you're there to soak up enjoyable experiences with your friends. Little accountability. You come right back to the same place. No advancement into enemy territory. But you're like, but I got together with friends and we had a good time. And there were a lot of programs that supported us having a good time together. And he says, in reality, the church is called by God to function like an aircraft carrier because you're out on mission. You return to be armed, equipped, briefed on a battle plan, fueled up and relaunched on an important mission with your life. And as you are on that mission, the whole thing continues to advance into enemy territory to take back the kingdom of this world for Jesus Christ. And you come back and you're refilled and you're refueled and you're like, that's what I needed this Sunday to go back into my workplace to live on mission for God. And so you're kind of like bouncing in and out off of the deck of this aircraft carrier, getting the things you need to equip you for the work of ministry, which is not just church ministry, it's all of life ministry. So I love that. That's what we want to do. We want to be an aircraft carrier, not just for this six weeks, but forever. Deanna read for us some select verses from Genesis 1 and 2. Now, this is so incredibly important. I would encourage all of you to take the time to go back and read those two chapters. It'll take you 10 minutes this week. And what's so important about Genesis 1 and 2, not only are they the first two chapters of the Bible, so we understand kind of intuitively this is foundational core truth. This is how God decided to write a book. These are the first things that he said to us. But they're also the only two chapters in the Bible about life before the fall, before the curse. So there are a lot of things that we can find in Genesis 1 and 2, even about relationships, about marriage, about sexuality, about all kinds of topics. That it's like, how did God intend it to be before sin entered the picture and everything kind of fell and broke and was cursed? Well, you can know. And that's why the title of this first sermon is God's Design for Work. How did God design for your work, your vocation to function before anything went wrong? And we're going to look at these five things in Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to look at the origin of work, the dignity of work, the nature of work, the purpose of work, and the limitation of work. Okay, so off and running, number one, the origin of work. 
And I direct your attention back to the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. And in the first five words of the Bible, you encounter the first worker, and the worker is God himself. And that's incredible. The first thing that the Bible tells you about God, think about that. He's holy, he's righteous, he's love, he's, he's eventually going to come and lay down his life. Yeah, all of that. The first thing the Bible tells you about God is he is a worker. Verse 4, I mean, I'll just go right through this. Verse 4, then after he's created, God separates light from darkness. Verse 7, God made. Verse 9, God gathered together the dry land. Verse 11, God planted vegetation. Verses 16 and 17, God made and he placed the, the heavenly body, sun, moon, stars, galaxies, all of that, nebula. Verses 21 and 25, God made animal life. Verse 27, God created humankind. Going on to chapter 2, verse 7, God says, God formed man from the dust of the ground. And verse 8, God planted a garden. And I just think this is incredible. Um, in the Bible's first description of God, not only is he, is he a worker, but look at how he's portrayed. He is a master craftsman. He is an artist. He is a zoologist. And he's a gardener. That's our God. He is forming and filling and arranging I mean, this is, this is anthropomorphic. It's ascribing human things to God. But the idea is he's got his hands in the dirt, actually fashioning and forming things with his hands, as it were, shaping and planting and gathering dirt and all these things. And if you don't know, this is incredibly different. The origin of work, according to the Christian Bible, is incredibly different than how virtually every other religion in the world describes both the origin of the world and humanity and also the origin of work itself. And I'll give you just two examples. Two myths that you've probably heard if you've studied any kind of mythology. One of them is a Babylonian myth called Enuma Elish. And in Enuma Elish, there's this great god, like the, the, the great god of the Babylonian pantheon is this god Marduk. And Marduk kills all these other gods. He splits Tiamat's body in half, forming the sky and the earth. He kills this other god, Ea, and the dripping blood of Ea, those blood splatters, form humanity. And this humanity is created to do the work of the gods so that the gods don't have to work anymore. So it's like, where did you come from? You came from chaos. You were the result of a battle. And as the result of this battle and bloodshed, gods made you, the deities made you, so that they didn't have to work anymore. Have a good life. That's Enuma Elish. Pandora's box, which is a Greek myth, and their, their kind of lead god over the pantheon is, is this god they call Zeus. And Zeus is mad at Prometheus because Prometheus gave fire to humankind and humans were never supposed to have fire. And so he ends up giving, uh, giving his brother this first human woman as his wife. So he has this human bride and her name is Pandora. And as part of this kind of curse, Zeus gives Pandora this box or jar, and it's filled with these things. And he's like, whatever you do, just don't open the box. And as we talked about last week with the law, what does the law do? It's like, well, if you're telling me not to open something, eventually my curiosity is going to get the better of me, and I'm going to open it. And Pandora opens Pandora's box, where we get the expression, and these curses come out. And one of those curses is work. And so 
so many of the different stories that we get from other religions, other worldviews, is the idea that work is a part of the curse. Work is something that we do so God doesn't have to. And it's beautiful that the Bible says, in the beginning, God worked. And I'll be quoting from this particular book periodically and some others as well, a book that I recommend. Timothy Keller and Catherine Leary Alsdorf wrote this book, Every Good Endeavor. We'll stock it in our library back here so you can pick up a copy from us. But I encourage you to grab a copy. We'll be sharing a few truths from here. We'll be unpacking scripture together. But one of the ways I'll lead off here is they, they say this about the origin of work. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later or something that human beings were created to do, but that was beneath the great God himself. No, God worked for the sheer joy of it. Work could not have had a more exalted inauguration, which brings us to point two, the dignity of work. And I want to show you here four firsts that we encounter in the first couple chapters of Genesis, that each of these four firsts shows you something about the dignity, the honor, the worth of our work. So one that I just shared with you is that, number one, when God is first mentioned in the first verse of the Bible, he's a worker, and not in a sacred vocation as we would think of it. He is a manual laborer and an artist. That elevates the dignity of our work, whatever our work is. A second first here that we encounter in these verses is when the Bible first mentions human beings, and you can skim through this, the first mention of human beings is chapter 1, verse 26. And when human beings are first mentioned in Scripture, the two things that first verse tells us is, first of all, who you are, and second of all, what God designed you to do. So look at this. Genesis 1, 26a says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and part B, and let them have dominion. And this is incredibly important because there are so many discussions and perspectives around, like, what does it mean that we're made in the image of God? What does it mean that we're made uniquely in the likeness of God? And, and nothing else in the animal kingdom is made in the image of God the way humankind is. And, and what's fascinating is, while it does mean many things, when it's first mentioned in the Bible, it is directly connected to the idea of dominion. And that's a word that means we were made in God's image to join him in the task of actively, and the word is ruling, governing, managing, overseeing the rest of creation. And the first time that we have an illustration of that, it's, it's almost funny how God hands off, like, I made you in my image. Now let's see how you use this stewardship, which is a word I'll introduce here, this stewardship to represent me on earth. The first time that humankind does this is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. So your Bible's open there. Look at this with me. It says, so out of the ground, so, so he's formed human. He's formed the first man, Adam. It says, so out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And I think that's hilarious. Like the first time God hands off some super important task, he's like, I've made all these creatures that you can't make. And I could do this myself, but I've entrusted you with an opportunity and a responsibility and a stewardship to, to just name the animals. And whatever you call them, that's the name. So platypus, there you go. Okay, flamingo, awesome. And it's almost like, God is telling us, again, before sin enters the world, sure, I could do all the work for you. 
Or I could just let you do all the work. But instead, we're going to have a partnership of work where I'm inviting you to do the work with me. And I'm going to step back and I'm going to delight in what you're doing with, with your mind, with the works of your hands. Again, from every good endeavor, we are called to stand in for God here in the world, exercising stewardship over the rest of creation in his place as his vice regents. We share in doing the things that God has done in creation, bringing order out of chaos, creatively building civilization out of the material of physical and human nature, caring for all that God has made. This is a major part of who we were created to be. Work has dignity because it is something that God does and because we do it in God's place as his representatives. We learn not only that work has dignity in itself, but also that all kinds of work have dignity. So God is a worker. When he first mentions human beings, he calls us to partner with him in work. Number three, the third first, is when God first spoke to humans. Okay, So when he first speaks about humans, it's about work. When he first spoke to humans... He literally gives them a calling to work, okay? The first, record of we, the first record we have of God saying anything to anyone is Genesis 1.28, which we read. I'll read it again. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And then when God first placed Adam in the garden, he gives him this task, 2.15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And I'll point out here that word work, abad, is the Hebrew word, means to cultivate something or to serve something. But what's fascinating is immediately this Hebrew word is taking on a religious connotation where all throughout Scripture now you're going to see that abad, work, means your service or your ministry as an act of worship to God. And what is Adam doing? He's gardening. So he's saying, Adam, your, your work, the labor of your hands to just start gardening this thing, this place that I've put you, is an act of worship. I think that's important because we often limit the idea of calling to, like, something that we think of as sacred, right? And I think we, we're like, oh, oh, calling, that's like full-time Christian ministry. And I've heard very well-intentioned people say things like this. When I was 21, God called me to be a pastor. Or when I was at such and so a conference, I felt a calling to go to this foreign mission field. And there's nothing wrong with those statements, but I think often the implication of statements like that is what? It's like before I was 21 and before I got the call to go to the foreign field, I was just doing secular work. I was just doing marketplace work. But then, friends, I got the call, right? And that's, that's the, that, that can be implied or inferred from those kinds of comments. It can be inferred that you didn't have a calling on your life before that very sacred thing. And I just want to point out from the first couple chapters of Scripture, there, there was no initial sacred secular divide of like what you're doing is not sacred but man just just hope God punches your ticket and you get one of those five percent calls to like be a pastor or a missionary or a Christian school teacher there is no such thing in scripture and so I want you to see this that the first man and woman were called to a sacred task of work and worship 
by God directly. And what was their act of worship? It was organic gardening. Organic gardening was the first sacred work and worship that we encounter in Scripture. Okay, so I want to introduce this concept as well. Sometimes we're, we're going to use the terms work, job, career. Another word is vocation from the Latin word vocare. And this is important because that Latin word actually means calling. And the idea is that whatever your vocation is in the marketplace or in what you think of as ministry, it doesn't matter. Each of you have a calling. And I think an important application of that is we need to drop language like this where people say, I'm just a plumber. I'm just an electrician. I'm just an admin assistant. I just fix people's cars. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. There's, there's no place for the word just in those kinds of conversations. You would say, I have a sacred calling of God to fix people's cars. I have a sacred calling of God to be at home right now with my children. And those things, if that's your vocation, that is your sacred calling. That's how much it matters to God and how much it should matter to you. See how we're, God is raising the dignity of work with these firsts. And there's one more, one more first here that I want to show you the dignity of work. When God first reflects on his creation, so he spent, you know, and I don't care, seven literal days. Was it, was it just a, Genesis 1 and 2 are poetic. They're Hebrew poetry. So God is just saying, this is how I did it. I was sovereign over creation. It didn't just happen without me. But the concept that he has here, as he first reflects then on what he made, is seven times in Genesis 1, he says, it's good or it's very good. And so I think it's important that we not demean the raw materials that God has given us to work with. And again, you, you don't say, I, I just move dirt around with large machines, or I just plant stuff in the dirt, or I just cook with those ingredients. I just raise cattle and chickens, and I go fishing, and I build structures with wood and glass and steel. Uh, God's like, well, look what I gave you to work with. Like, the stuff I gave you to work with is good. And again, we're not Gnostics, which means we, we don't sit here as Christians and say, well, the earth stuff, the physical stuff, you know, it's either neutral or even kind of bad. But if you get to do spiritual stuff that really impact people's hearts and lives and minds, then you're doing something important to God. Now, the fact that God says, look at what I made, look at the physical universe. It is very, very good. And you get to work with that day in and day out. And I would say these are four layers demonstrating the dignity of work. Again, just to rehearse them for you. Number one, God works. Number two, God created you to represent him in your work. Number three, God calls you to this work as your active worship. And then four, the material world itself is good, not evil. Okay, the dignity of work. Now, a, a, an important chunk of what we're going to talk about here this morning is the nature of work. Like, what, what am I here to do? What, what categories of work are pleasing to God? And look, look with me again at Genesis 1.28, which we've read. And let me just unpack a couple key terms here. So God blessed them. That's the first man and the first woman. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And some of you may know that verse is referred to by, by theologians the world over for a very long time. It's called the cultural mandate. And I think this is interesting, too. Um, when you talk about the mission of God, we can often jump straight to, like, well, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel and plant churches and all that stuff, which is 
near and dear to the heart of God. But man's first mission is this verse right here. This is the first time in Scripture that God gives humankind a mission, a mandate. And here it is. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill. The idea is to flourish, to produce abundance, to produce overflow, to cause other human beings and culture itself to thrive. And then Keller says very importantly, that's not just procreation, that is civilization. So in other words, we're not just having babies like be fruitful and multiply. The idea is we're building civilization, we're building culture, we're building gardens, we're building cities. This term subdue is the second term here, which is the idea of bringing something under control or harnessing the power or the potential of something. And this is an important term. We, 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 we have destructive ways, we have manipulative ways of harnessing the potential of our environments. You know, extracting certain things from the earth maybe where we just leave it an absolute mess, a toxic waste dump. That would not be Christian to do that. But we do know that as we go to different, even unexplored places of our own earth, planet earth, that without human beings taming them and subduing them, places live in relative chaos. Things just happen. And the idea of the cultural mandate in the first chapter of the Bible is human beings, as you, as you go to these places, I'm calling you, as I did, to bring the chaos under control, to recognize the potential of what's there and to utilize it, and we'll see shortly, like for my glory and for the benefit of all. That's the term subdue. And then dominion, we already talked about leading, governing, managing. Okay, then in, then in 2.15, again, this is where God puts Adam in the garden and says, work it and keep it. Abad, again, cultivate, serve it as your act of worship. And then keep it, shamar, is this idea of exercise great care over it. Like observe it. Tend to it. Pay attention to it. And so if I were to summarize the cultural mandate, these two verses, Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 2.15, basically God is saying, cultivate, create, and care for. And you can see right, right there, cultivate, create, care for. Right there, God has opened wide the door of like, I'm not calling everyone to be a pastor. I'm not calling everyone to be a missionary or a Christian school teacher. How many ways in your work can you cultivate, create, and care for? How many ways in your work can you take the raw materials that are there and do something meaningful with them, like plant gardens and care for them, build cities, cultures, and civilizations that reflect my character and my purposes, unfold the potential of the world where I've placed you to be my representatives? How many ways in your work can you do that? Many, probably. And it's a term that Christian artist Makoto Fujimura calls generative work. And I love this quote. He says, thinking and living that are truly generative make possible works and movements that make our culture more humane and welcoming and that inspire us to be more fully human. I'm going to pause there for a second and say, like, so as Christians, what we just saw, we are not freaked out about being more fully human because you were made in the image of God. So to be more fully human is actually a restoration of your God-designed purpose and identity, is what he's saying. But that God-designed purpose and identity is not just like we need to get people saved. Yes, we want to see people come to Christ. But he's like, if we're making our culture more humane and welcoming and inspirational, 
that is making us more fully human. He goes on, we can be comfortable, even confident, in affirming a cultural contribution as generative if, over time, it recognizes, produces, or catalyzes more beauty, goodness, and flourishing. And again, how many different vocations and occupations and jobs and tasks does that open up if you're like, oh, I can, I can catalyze or recognize truth and beauty and goodness and flourishing in my area of work. This is so important because, again, what's our point right now? The nature of work that God has called us to. And I think very often Christians are, are just stumped. Where they're like, well, what, what should the nature of my work be as a Christian? And they're like, uh, I guess be ethical and um, evangelize my coworkers. And, th- and then you're stuck. And it's so important to go back to God's original purpose and realize it's not unfaithful to God. It is, in fact, faithful to your initial first calling in the Bible to simply do generative work, to cause other people to flourish, to cause other people to experience something of God's truth and beauty and goodness and love. Another resource that I'll direct you to is this book, Kingdom Calling, by a woman named Amy Sherman. And I love this section in her book. I wish I could photocopy it, but that would be illegal. But, um, so get the book, and it's about halfway through. And what she does is basically say, if you were made in the image of God, and you're called to join him in the work that he's already doing, she's like, so we look through Scripture, and we can basically find six kinds of work that God is doing in the Bible. And you can join him in any of those six things or all of those six things. And I'll just give them to you. Number one, creative work, like fashioning the physical and human world. Now, we're not creating in the way that God created, and there's this awesome term, ex nihilo. Like, we're not creating out of nothing, but we have these raw materials, and it's like, well, that art didn't exist before. That building didn't exist before. That document for your work before, that lesson plan did not exist before, and now you're bringing it into existence as participants in the creative work of God. Okay, so that's one category. Number two is providential work, which is providing for and sustaining creation. Number three is justice work. I think that speaks for itself, like justice and equity, seeking it, maintaining it on behalf of yourself and others. Number four is compassionate work, where God is doing this work of comforting, healing, guiding, shepherding, and you're called to do those things as well. Number five, revelatory work, which is enlightening with truth, bringing more truth, more light into a situation. And number six, and we'll spend a whole week on this one, but is redemptive work, which is the idea of saving and reconciling, of bringing back together, of restoring what's broken. How do we do that? So six categories of stuff. And you're like, okay, now in God's word, the nature of my work is immediately being expanded where it's not just like, okay, just be ethical and I guess try to share my faith with someone on my lunch break or else I'm being an unfaithful Christian. Now you have hundreds of ways, thousands of ways to be a faithful Christian in your work by fleshing out particular principles, okay? We're still talking about before the fall, what the Bible's telling us about God's design for our work, and he gives us a purpose. And before I tell you God's purpose, what is your purpose? You know, why, why do you work? You know, most of you would be like, well, that's fairly obvious. Like, I need money to do the things that I want to do. And some of you would even readily acknowledge, like, I hate my job. I 
hate what I do. I get no pleasure in it, but it's kind of a means to an end so I can achieve these other things. And by the way, if that's you, I'm not making fun of you. Let's talk because there may be ways that God wants you to adapt how you approach your work, how you do your work, so you find purpose and meaning in it and joy in it. And it may be that God's using that to say, yeah, actually for you, I've called you to something different and it's okay to figure out what is that different thing that I could do with my gifts and opportunities to enjoy life, enjoy the, the good gifts that God has given me and to honor him. But I'm thinking here, what, what, is, what is the purpose or the end goal of your work as you already approach it? And I think typically the, the, the three types of answers I hear are like there's a financial end goal of like I just, I just wanted to afford a certain kind of lifestyle. There's a reputation goal, like I want to make a name for myself. And I don't mean like you're arrogant, that kind of like I'm going to build the Tower of Babel. But just like I want to build a reputation and a good reputation so that I, I work hard. And then I think there's this self-validation thing where we, we play this game of like if I do meaningful work, important work, good work, then I know my life has purpose and significance because other people look at it and they're like, we need you. I'm not saying those things are wrong. In fact, the financial, like scripture explicitly says, like in the New Testament, it's like if you're stealing, stop stealing, go get a job so that you have money to support your own family and your own needs and share with other people. So even a financial goal is a good goal. It's just not an ultimate goal. So we come back to Genesis 1 and 2 and I would talk first about like why did God work in Genesis 1 and 2. What was the purpose? What was the end goal? And we see there in those chapters, and we see reflected back later on in passages like in the Psalms where it's like the heavens declare the glory of God. And the, the earth is filled with his goodness. And you see God in Genesis 1 and 2 is working, one, ultimately for his own glory, like to put his excellence on display but he is working that goodness into creation. Like he's working for the good, for the love of humankind and for even all creatures. So if this is why God is working, basically for his own glory and for the joy of all people, then why should you and I be working? For the glory of God and the joy of all people. And by the way, this reminds me of another foundational principle. You know, in that passage where this is going to the New Testament, but the Rabbis and scribes, different ones, religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus. And they're like, hey, Jesus, you're a rabbi, so what do you say about this? What do you think is the most important command in all the law of Moses? The Torah. And in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus says this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. And I want to just tie this back. So if the purpose of God's work in Genesis 1 is to display his glory and to seek the goodness to benefit his creatures, do you see how that immediately connects with, like, love God, love people? I mean, if you think of nothing else this week, it's like, well, I could go into my work and just say, Lord, what would be an expression of putting your excellence on display in my workplace as a manifestation of my love for you? And how can I seek the benefit of someone else in my job as a manifestation of my love for them? And, and you're often running with a purpose of God. Tom Nelson says, first and foremost, work is not about economic exchange financial remuneration, or a pathway to the American dream, but about God honoring human creativity and contribution. 
And I want to pause here for just a second and just say, like, okay, Matt, you've said a couple times now that we're talking Genesis 1 and 2, two chapters before sin, before the fall, before the curse. And so we, we, we could do this with some things and say, is that kind of like you're talking about the origin of work and the dignity of work and the nature of work and the purpose of work. And I'm hearing this as like, those are God's ideal, but come on, let's be realistic. Like everything broke and we cannot get back there. So how do we settle? And I think there's a fascinating text post-fall that puts this all together. Puts together the nature and purpose of our work in a very surprising context. It's one of my favorite contexts. Jeremiah 29, verses 5 through 7. If you know this story, the Israelites have actually been deported to Babylon. So they're exiles in a foreign culture that serves false gods. They don't have the kind of uh, a freedom, independence, some of you would say agency in their work that they would hope to. They're slaves. And God says through the prophet Jeremiah to slaves living in an exilic culture in a foreign land, he says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And I'll stop there. That sounds an awful lot like what? like the cultural mandate in Genesis 1, plus the greatest commandment. Love God, depend on him, but seek the welfare, seek the benefit, seek the shalom of your neighbors, even when your neighbors are an enemy horde that has deported you to a foreign land and made you their slaves. What he's saying is, again, go back to this. The words right there in Jeremiah 29, cultivate, create, care for, build, plant, be fruitful and multiply, do generative things, to use Fujimura's word, to seek the glory of God and the peace and welfare of the people and place where God has put you for a, for a period of time, even in a fallen world. Okay, And I think so much of our own Christian experience the New Testament will reflect on us. Like, we, we are not home here. We are not at home here. This is not our final kingdom. It's like the kingdom of the world, the city of Denver. It's like God is going to come and make things new. He's going to renovate this world. And so we can feel sometimes like exiles. We can feel sometimes like, I would love to shoot for those ideals, but let's be realistic. And we have like a Jeremiah 29 where God's like, even in a fallen world, even where you lack agency, do you see how what glorifies me is planting gardens and building culture and having children and replicating civilization in a way that tames the resources around you and brings good and benefit to other people? So back to every good endeavor, I think this is such a great, great way to put it. The question regarding our choice of work is no longer what will make me the most money and give me the most status. The question must now be how, with my existing abilities and opportunities, can I be of greatest service to other people, knowing what I do of God's will and human need? So you're just bringing things together in a broken world. You're like, okay, what do I know of my gifts that God has given me, my abilities, my opportunities, as limited as they are. And I'm looking around and saying, what do people need? What would honor God here? 
And I put those things together, and all of a sudden I've got a purpose, even in a broken world, for my work, because I'm still putting God's love, God's creativity, God's truth, God's justice, God's compassion on display, and I'm still seeking the, the shalom, the welfare, the benefit, the common good for other people. All right, one last point I think it's important to mention out of the gate week one here, okay? The limitation of work. Because I think, I, I don't want you to hear me saying something like this. If work is good, then more work is automatically awesomer. So right in the middle of this narrative, Genesis 2, 1 through 3, as God is doing all this work of organic gardening and zoology and all of this stuff, creating, arranging, filling, flourishing, Right in the middle of this, there's this important balancing truth that says on the seventh day, again, in this, in this poem, on the seventh day, God himself rested. And then he hands this pattern to humans. And I think this is important. Not only is work before the fall, work is before sin, but rest is before the fall too. So rest is not this accommodation of God of like, oh, shoot, now you're broken. What are we going to do the fact that you wear out and you're tired? Uh, I guess we'll give you a day off. No, this is baked into God's original idea for work is that you deliberately put down your tools, whatever the tools of your trade are, and you rest. And God is saying, this is, this is the point, he's like, once a week in a very deliberate way, I want you to remind yourselves and help each other with this, that you are not defined by your productivity or your performance. You can do nothing for me, just rest in me. And this is an important balance to your work. So like, yes, work for me, work with me, work through my power, but then come away and rest with me. Just be present with me. And this is practical. This is not the Bible, but I, would, I, I tell people this often. Like if, if you work with your body, then rest with your mind. If you work with your mind, then rest with your body. So I work with my mind a lot and rest may look like going skiing or going fly fishing or something. Just to say, I'm, I'm coming away. My mind is kind of frazzled after a week of thinking through, praying through, strategizing through all these specific things. Then, like, it's okay to engage your body. The idea of rest is not, like, lay on the couch and just, then you're like, I guess I'll just watch TV. Because, I mean, that's, for most of us, that's not that restful sometimes, okay? But I just want you to see that rest is a part of God's perfect creation just like work is. All right, let's, let's land the plane. Let's like, kind of wrap this all up. So let me talk to you about Southwest Flight 1380. So on April 17th, 2018, Southwest Flight 1380 took off out of LaGuardia, headed for Dallas, I believe. As the plane went through 32,000 feet, there was a loud bang, and the, the plane suddenly yawed 40 degrees to the left. It's the idea of like if you're on a skid pad in a car and you just slide sideways suddenly, but the left engine had exploded, sending shrapnel into the fuselage. Many of you will remember this from the news. It, it burst open a window and a woman was actually partially sucked out of that window. Well, immediately in the cabin, there's smoke. There's that instant depressurization. So the pilot's ears are like in excruciating pain. Um, they're breathing smoke. They, they, they can't breathe because there's not oxygen at 32,000 feet that you're supposed to breathe. So all the oxygen masks are coming down and all that. And uh, the, the plane is beginning a very rapid descent without this engine. 
Now, I share this because one of the pilots, Tammy Jo Schultz, was a Christian. And so my question is, as a Christian in the cockpit of a plane that is in deep peril, what is her sacred calling in that moment? And it's obvious, right? It's obvious that what she should do is get up from her pilot seat and, and not worry about that locking door between the, the cabin and the cockpit. And she should go preach Jesus to all these people who are about to die, right? And, and lead a worship service and just, just offer to pray with people and stuff like that. You say, no, that's crazy. What, what, what was her sacred calling in that moment? Land the plane. Land the plane. This is what God has trained you to do. And by the way, an interesting detail on that. So she was a Navy fighter pilot because, she would probably say in her testimony, because I was a woman, when she kind of retired from being an active pilot, she trained other pilots, and she wanted to do this really cool, prestigious thing of ground school and some of the basic introduction stuff. Um, she never got those cool jobs in training other pilots. Do you know what she had to do for a long period of her life before she became a Southwest pilot? Is she had to do basically like stall and extreme condition school. So day after day after day, she's going up in a two-seat fighter jet with another pilot who's being trained. And she'd be like, okay, you fly it up and we get a certain altitude. I'm going to intentionally like flip the plane, do something terrible to the plane, and you have to recover it. And if you don't, I will. So she's got, like, she's got younger pilots blacking out on her because they can't handle the G-forces of what she's putting them through. They're freaking out. They don't know how to pull a fighter jet out of the kinds of things that she's doing, making a jet tumble through the air instead of fly. And she's like, for years and years, I was like, God, why do I have to do this garbage job of like recovering planes in midair when both engines just suddenly quit and it's stalled and it's tumbling and... Then one day she was like, oh, oh, you were, you were not only preparing me for a sacred purpose, but that itself was a sacred purpose, okay? I just end with that illustration to give you hope that you may not even realize how now, just by simply doing the good work that God has called you to do according to his grand design, you may be like, I, I don't see the good in it right now, but I'll bet you God's preparing you at the least, for some time later in your life, will you look back and be like, now it makes sense, okay? So here, here's kind of the one big idea I'm leaving you with. Your work has inherent dignity. You don't give it dignity. It's not certain jobs that have dignity. I'm saying your work has inherent dignity as you join God in the benevolent stewardship of his creation.